Today on Ag News Daily. So we launched a, a fund at the end of 2020. It's called Promised Land Opportunity Zone Fund. Um, and it's focused on bringing capital uh, from investors to low-income communities across the United States. Good afternoon and happy Friday from the Ag News Daily Podcast here with Ashton Carr and Delaney Howell. Delaney, are you continuing to stay warm up there in Iowa for the end of this week? Yes, I've been trying to avoid going outside as much as possible, as silly as that sounds. I had to go yesterday and get some groceries since we've been gone for a while. But other than that, I've been staying inside. Well, you know, I have my dog here and we live in an apartment, so he doesn't have a big backyard or anything that I can just release him to when he has to go outside and do his business. So I had to bundle up in a couple of layers while the snow was coming down yesterday and pretty hard, might I add. And we had to walk around the park for a little bit to get some daily exercise. So just one of the things about being a dog mom, I guess. That's true. It's good for you. Builds character. Yeah, it makes me a little tougher, makes my uh, skin a little bit thicker, but I've got to say, I did not like the snow and Atlas didn't either. He was running back to the apartment when he realized that we were going back home. So I think he likes being inside just as much as I do. Well, we had a traumatic night last night with our dog. Uh, I have a 15-year-old toy poodle who's about 12 pounds and I got him... A long time ago, he's been with me pretty much my entire, not quite my entire life. I got him when I was in middle school, uh, but he's been around the block for quite some time. And last night we were deep in slumber and decided to let Bo sleep with us because he, we'd been gone and he missed us uh, and woke up this morning, Ashton, at about 2.30 to find out that he had decided to go to the bathroom, number two, on her bed. Oh, my, I, I'm sorry. I really cannot contain my laughter. I, yeah. I'm very, very sorry that that happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I'm not even kidding. It's the worst smell I have probably ever smelled. Like it was so bad. Blaine and I were trying to clean it up at two 30 this morning, uh, gagging, probably about to puke. It was so bad. It was unpleasant. We did not fall asleep very well afterwards. So yeah, we had an interesting, uh, night last night. Well, I think that that's just his way of telling you that uh, you don't need to be leaving him for that much longer. Uh, well, you you say that he does this frequently when we leave him for more than a couple of days or if we're gone all day long. He's done this before. It's his way of getting back at us saying that he's mad we've left him. So I can't say I'm surprised by this. I just wish he hadn't done it on our bed. That's really funny. One of our we have a two little mini schnauzers and a corgi my parents do and the oldest schnauzer her name's prissy and she's 12 or 13 years old so she's getting on up there in age two but that's like my dad's dog they are besties and when she gets mad at my dad she'll go on his side of the bed and pee right where he puts his feet (laughs) in the mornings so I understand or I guess I can sympathize a little yeah it doesn't get any more real than this folks this is uh, raw, the raw stories of our real lives on the podcast today. But Ashton, 
we got to get to some news today. People probably don't want to listen to us continuing to talk about our dogs going to the bathroom. <laughs> so I'll kick things off here with an interesting piece of news coming to us from JBS. They've had many different price fixing scandals and many sorts of legal battles here over the past couple of years, really since 2017, when we launched the podcast, ironically enough, but they have officially agreed to a partial settlement of $52.2 million in an antitrust lawsuit alleging price fixing. Now, this lawsuit is the one that was originally filed back in June of 2020 through the U.S. District Court of Minnesota, where folks were contending and alleging that the cattle market manipulation by four of the largest meat packers, including JBS, was going on. So RCAF U.S. CEO, Bill Bullard says, while this is a separate from the case, his organization filed there watching it very closely and believe it's a good sign for the cattle industry on this front. But NCBA Vice President Todd Wilkinson of South Dakota told Brownfield he's concerned the settlement might prompt the Department of Justice to back off their other investigations. So certainly a step in the right direction, but mixed feelings there for agriculture. You know, Delaney, ironically enough, I have three stories here today, and all of them are dealing with the cattle industry, so I don't have a whole lot of variety, unfortunately, but this piece of news that I'm going to follow that up with is talking about anti-competitive practices in the beef industry and a potential solution to combat these kinds of practices. And today, Delaney, we saw the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Department of Justice launch FarmerFairness.gov. This is a new online tool that will allow farmers and ranchers to anonymously report potentially unfair and anti-competitive practices in the livestock and poultry sectors. The launch of the new portal is intended to advance the goals of the Biden-Harris administration's action plan for a fairer, more competitive, and more resilient meat and poultry supply chain including by creating more competitive agricultural markets that are fair to producers as well as consumers. As part of the agency's enforcement partnership, they are signing an interagency memorandum of understanding to further foster cooperation and communication between the DOJ and the USDA and effectively process the complaints received through the portal. So I thought that this was pretty interesting, Delaney, as, of course, we continue to talk about anti-competitiveness in the meat sector. But I'm interested to see if people actually commit to using this tool. Yeah, that will be an interesting one to see how folks adapt and react to it. And Ashton, you know, while you're talking beef news, I've got one other piece of beef news that I wanted to mention here. And that was this week's earlier cattle on feed report, which reported cattle inventory down 2% as of January 1st, with only about 30.1 million beef cows nationwide. This is a shrinking number. And a lot of folks are pointing to severe drought out West, contributing to the decline in the U.S. cattle herd. But this is certainly a large decline in overall numbers. We've got just 91.9 million head in the United States. And certainly, you know, as we talked yesterday on the podcast, beef demand and beef prices are expected to continue to be resilient, part of which due to the fact that we have less 
less uh, cattle here on feed. But as we're talking about those dry conditions that contributed or helps contribute, of course, COVID did as well to the shrinking beef herd. Dry conditions prevail in the U.S. as the most recent drought monitor shows. This week's moisture will not be recorded until next week's map is released. So, of course, all of the winter storm mix that we've had this week will hopefully alleviate some of those areas that are dealing with severe drought. But as we look across the U.S. this week, the high plain is really the area that's continuing to deal with some pretty heavy drought areas, as well as all the way down into your neck of the woods down there, Ashton, in Lubbock. So certainly going to be continuing to watch that story and see how it prevails. Uh, but all in all, Ashton, about 70% of the U.S. is in some pretty severe drought conditions. And I know we've been talking a little bit about content for next week. And I think it's really important that next week we uh, definitely, I know you brought this idea up, talk to some wheat producers who are dealing with some of this extreme drought, because it's going to be interesting to see, especially for them, how this year plays out. Absolutely. It's going to be really key to hopefully get some rains, you know, because of course we did have this winter storm that brought some moisture to some places that need it. But, you know, a lot of people are still being impacted. You know, this wasn't enough moisture for the soil or, you know, to really improve any kind of crop conditions, I think. But we'll get a firsthand look at that hopefully next week, folks. But in the meantime, you know, Delaney, I said that I had all cattle news today, but I forgot about this little piece of legislation that I wanted to mention as well. The Ocean Shipping Reform Act serves as a companion bill to the one that has already been passed by the House. House co-sponsors say that they hope the bills head to conference quickly. And just a, a little bit of conversation about really what's going on here. During AgriPulse's recent webinar on the supply chain crisis, Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota called for congressional action to reform shipping standards. And we've really seen that across the board here because we also saw a California congressman say that ag exporters are in the process of losing their markets and more pressure is needed to make carriers leave ports loaded. There are, of course, many sponsors to this bill, and numerous ag groups are praising this piece of legislation. In fact, head of the U.S. Dairy Export Council says the measure takes strong strides to address many of the challenges that dairy exporters in particular have faced, including securing export vessel bookings and combating unfair detention and demurrage charges. They are calling for a swift passage, but we'll have to wait and see really what other people think about this act and if we're going to see any changes made or if it actually does get passed. Well, Ashton, I suppose it's fitting. We've had a lot of beef-related news because, of course, the NCBA convention's been going on this week down there in Houston, dealing with hopefully not as much inclement weather as the rest of the United States. But, you know, our neighbors to the north have certainly been used to dealing with this type of weather, I suppose. But I wanted to bring this story to our listeners' attention. I wasn't aware of it until, honestly, earlier today. And this has been going on for a couple of days now. But Ottawa officials say that they're looking at every option to help end the trucker strike that's been going on now for not quite a week. Canadian truckers have been protesting over COVID-19 health restrictions, which now they now say are unlawful 
And Ottawa officials said Wednesday they're looking, as I mentioned there, at every single option, including military aid, to try and get products shipped to where they need to go. The Ottawa police chief also stated that such a request for help would be rare, and he's only recalled the military being called in to help uh, fix a civil disobedience twice in the last century. But they said that there's no plans, according to Canada's defense minister, for the military to get involved. But uh, truckers basically have been striking about a recent mandate which would require drivers entering Canada to be fully vaccinated or face testing and quarantine requirements. They're saying that's simply difficult and unfair for them to have to abide. But Canada was in another lockdown here, Ash, and I believe that ended just January 31st earlier this week. So, the protest essentially started around that same time. You know, Delaney, I talked a little bit while you were away about really how that's impacting the pork industry and then also really impacting Canada because they don't have a whole lot of feed on hand. And that's really suffering because, you know, truckers from the U.S. can't go over there and, you know, get those things done, ship those items that they really need. So that's a big issue. But I would went and got my hair done yesterday and my hairdresser, her husband works for an ag agency up here in the panhandle. And we were talking about how he has been very confused. And I think a little bit frustrated with what's going on when it comes to what's going on with truckers and vaccinations and and those kinds of things. So it's really impacting all of us from a, a couple of different standpoints. And I think that it was kind of funny that my hairdresser and I were talking about that of all things yesterday. Well, shame on me for not listening to the podcast earlier this week when I was gone, Ashton, but uh, glad I had a little bit of an update there. Well, Delaney, I just have one other piece of news that I wanted to chat about today, and it's coming from Indonesia. As authorities over there have declared two villages on Java Island red zones and banned livestock movement from the area after the deaths of several farm animals due to anthrax. Seven cattle and a goat have so far tested positive for anthrax among 15 farm animals that have died in recent days. Authorities are now waiting for more test results, and there were 23 people with skin infections, likely from handling or consuming infected animals. So I am going to keep my eye out on this to see if some of these animals do come back and test positive for anthrax. I think that there's going to, of course, be some investigations here on really what happened, because this could be potentially pretty dangerous. It certainly could, Ashton. And as you're talking danger, this isn't really what I would say dangerous, but certainly could be a threat to the market. And that's China's corn sale cancellation. China has been reported to purchased, have purchased about 484 million bushels of U.S. corn, but about 80% of that corn has yet to ship. And folks are a little bit concerned that a risk could be China canceling these corn sales altogether. The USDA announced yesterday morning private exporters reported cancellations about of about 14.96 million bushels of corn, which was headed to China. And, you know, we saw corn close a little bit lower on the day yesterday, and they're indicating this could be why. But 
USDA's weekly export sales report yesterday showed that China had, like I mentioned there, bought 490 million bushels of corn. And that's a lot to get shipped between now and when the marketing year ends. And, you know, as we continue to talk about supply chain issues, you know, we've got these new pop-up facilities that are happening, but that's a lot of corn to logistically get shipped over to China. So if I had to speculate, I would almost guess that maybe China is playing a little bit of hardball here until they really see what comes online from Brazil's safrina corn crop. I don't know. That's just me reading between the lines. There's obviously a lot more to it than that, but that certainly is a concern that the markets are paying close attention to, Ashton. Well, Delaney, how about we go ahead and get into the markets for today? Let's do that. And we certainly saw some green across the screen today after yesterday's pullback. March corn closed up three and three quarters cents at 620 and a half. Dece new crop corn up five and a half cents, closing at 573 and three quarters. Soybeans today in the March contract up nine and a quarter cent, closing at 1553 and a half. November new crop soybeans up three cents on the day, closing at 1395 and three quarters. And I was looking at some market commentary yesterday. Ashton that said the soybean contract high of all time was $16.67. So we're about a buck away from that right now. And it's certainly going to be interesting to see how the markets trade in the midst of some of these other external factors going on, like South American weather. But Chicago wheat also was pulled higher today as the March contract added 11 and a half cents, closing at 763 and a quarter. The May up 11 and three quarter cents, closing at 770 on the nose. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today, we saw a mixed trade in the cattle complex as the April live cattle contract added 12 and a half cents, closing at 146.87 and a half. The June down 15, closing at a buck 41. Feeder cattle today showed a little bit of weakness as the March contract gave up 62.5 cents, closing at 166.10. The April down 37.5 cents, closing at 171.42 and a half. And lean hogs showed strength today as the April contract finished the week up $1.70, closing at $100.07. The May contract added $1.47 and a half cents today, closing at 103.67 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. March today settled 35 cents higher, closing out the week at 21.66. The April added 39 cents, closing the day at 21.78. Ashton, without further ado, we're going to be kicking things over to our conversation to talk about different funds going on right now in the ag industry. Well, folks, for the podcast today, we're talking to the man, the myth, the legend, or also known as the manager of Promised Land Opportunities Zone Fund and the founder of Servant Financial, John Hennigan. Did I say your name right, John? I should have asked that before we started. Oh, it's it's Henehan. Henehan. Uh, most folks with the spelling as it is pronounced it Hennigan, but my grandfather uh, was particular that the G is silent, Henehan. 
John Heenahan. Well, welcome to the podcast, John. We are very excited to talk to you today because you wear a lot of different hats. As I mentioned there, you kind of have two different roles. Yeah. And our listeners can't see you, but you're wearing a Yellowstone Dutton Ranch hat, which I certainly appreciate being a Yellowstone fan myself. But tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up in the financial and fund space. Uh, terrific. Well, it's great to be with you, Delaney and Ashton. Um, I am an accountant uh, and finance professional by education and training. My dad was a, a CPA, so I followed the family lineage. I'm a, a bit of a curious George by nature and enjoy new challenges and, and problem solving. Um, I don't know if it's uh, interesting or not. Uh, but I think people will tell you that I'm a uh, steady, durable individual. Uh, for example, I've run uh, six marathons since I turned 40. And I've been married to the same lovely lady for 33 years. And she keeps me humble and motivated. Well, John, it sounds like your grandfather really wanted you guys to have a unique name with this spelling. And I think that it's quite fitting because you are quite the unique man. Like you really just kicked us off here into conversation. I love hearing a little bit more about you and your background. But one thing that I also want to be sure to hit on is really what you do in the ag space with Servant Financial. You're doing some capital management. So how are you helping farmers in doing this? Yeah. Um, so we launched a, a fund at the end of 2020. It's called Promised Land Opportunity Zone Fund. Um, and it's focused on bringing capital uh, from investors to low-income communities across the United States. A fair percentage of those low-income communities are in rural America. Um, and it's, it's probably 30, 40% of the 8,700 uh, census tracts or opportunity zones that receive uh, these tax benefits. So it's, uh, it's a tax-driven mechanism whereby investors who roll capital gains into a qualified opportunity zone fund like Promise Land get uh, certain tax benefits, the biggest of which is on a 10-year hold, they will not pay uh, capital gains tax on any appreciation of the farmland over a 10-year hold period, which historically on any 10-year hold period, even if you bought farmland in the early 80s at its, at its peak before uh, farm aid, uh, if you held for 10 years, you would have been in the black high, high single-digit return. So we're trying to bring uh, capital to those communities that uh, need a helping hand. And we do that by purchasing farmland, high quality farmland in those communities and renting it out to our partners, uh, farmer operators uh, who work the land and pay us to basically a, a fixed rent. To get the tax benefits for our investors, we have to improve the land. Uh, and so what we do is typically grain bids, storage, uh, 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 drainage system work, uh, irrigation equipment, anything that improves 
the productive capacity of the land. So we're looking for uh, not only investors, but we're also looking for uh, farmer partners uh, looking to expand their acreage under management in these uh, uh, rural communities in opportunity zones. And John, you alluded there to what opportunity zone funds are. They focus on low income areas, but why did you decide to pick opportunity zones in the first place? Um, Well, I spent uh, 13 years uh, overseeing alternative investments for, uh, which is basically private equity and hedge funds for a a billionaire named Samuel Zell. So I, I oversaw this family office's investment. Uh, And I embarked on an adventure to learn and understand the Opportunity Zone tax legislation that was passed in late 2017. Uh, And I was backed by another another family office. Uh, The the OZ legislation uh, was interesting and new. uh, And so I, I went down that path, spent some time looking primarily at uh, urban uh, opportunity zones and multifamily developments, but I didn't didn't find anything uh, worthwhile, the partner or the project risk-return combination. Um, And then COVID hit, and my, my partner and brother, Tom, and I decided to look into whether opportunity zone tax benefit structure applied to farmland. We figured that uh, a simple premise that the people have got to eat. So food and farming are essential to humanity and prosperity of, of, of those communities and in our nation. So I dug into the tax legislation and determined it was uh, a terrific opportunity. And uh, it was attracted by the environmental and social and uh, governance impact of of the uh, promised land could bring to rural America. There's probably, I think, uh, five funds uh, that are focused on rural America, promised land being one. And there's two other funds focused in ag. One's doing um, controlled environment uh, agriculture, so greenhouses, and another's doing uh, innovations in uh, animal protein. So we've got uh, a white space in, uh, in cropland and in opportunity zones. And, and what we're trying to do is, uh, is sort of attract your listeners and farmers and partners and investors that live, farm, and, and play in those, those rural communities that need a helping hand. So, John, do farmers invest or apply to have their farmland be part of the fund? How does that all work? Uh, if farmers have capital gains, they can invest in, in promised land opportunity zone fund. Um, or if uh, they're looking to expand their, their operations uh, and need some capital, we'll basically uh, finance the acquisition of farm quality, quality farmland in OZs and improve improve the the product productive capacity of the land for the benefit of of the farmer uh we've got uh, some terrific uh farming partners um we've got 10 farms uh, the largest of which is in north carolina 
and uh, we've got a terrific tenant, uh, a progressive progressive farmer who knows the acreage. It's 4,000 acres, uh, more than half of our total acreage. And uh, he's a progressive farmer. He, he's a good land steward. And he's there's a lot of optionality and improving the land. And we're doing, he just started some uh, drainage ditch uh, and water management projects. And we're going to put a commercial grain or commercial scale grain bench storage uh, facility on the property. Um, and there's, there's more to do uh, with farmers like that, that uh, are innovative and, and, and trying to provide food to feed uh, not only uh, Americans, but the, but the world. John, I'm curious to learn a little bit more. What kind of benefits have you seen in rural communities since launching this fund? Uh, we're just getting started on some of the, uh, the uh, some of the improvements. Um, and I so I'm a capital allocator. I don't know a lot about farms. Um, when we found out or d- determined that uh, OZs worked for farmland, uh, I reached out to Paul Pittman, who's CEO of Farmland Partners, uh, New York Stock Exchange listed uh, REIT, Farmland REIT. Uh, uh, the symbol is FPI. Reach out to him and said, uh, "We think Opportunity Zone structure works for farmland. Uh, would you like to partner with us? We need a property manager to source, underwrite, and uh, manage tenant relationships and manage uh, the the improvement projects." So we we entered into the, the joint venture uh, in the spring of twenty twenty one. We bought the initial nine farms from farmland partners uh, that met the improvement criteria. And then we bought the the 10th farm that I was talking about earlier um, in North Carolina um, in August, late August. So the the types of things we're seeing. So I spent the most time um, in North Carolina on um, that farm. Um, What I've come to appreciate is the the rural communities the people are very authentic they want to they want to improve uh, uh, their lot in life and their their community's lot in life um and i i've spent maybe six six trips and i look forward to going going back and spending more time in in those communities um one of the things that struck me about the uh, uh, Pamlico County, North Carolina, was uh, their uh, their seal, and on the seal um, is uh, an old farmer uh, with a spade, and he's he's turning the soil. Um, and I just thought that that spoke volumes about the, the the community and all the the folks at the FSA office were. You know, they had that seal on their trucks and it was all over the office office space. Um, and I uh, maybe a quote from my favorite author might jazz it up and tell you how I'm thinking about it. Uh, is John O'Donoghue, uh, a kinsman from Ireland. Uh, People who live in the country know that you have to live in the country to know what the country is actually like. So I believe he's right. And I want to spend a lot more time 
uh, on farms in rural American communities over the lifespan of Promised Land OZ Fund. Well, John, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you to discuss what we have talked about here a little bit further, you know, want to know how they can get involved, where can they find you at? Uh, yeah, the best place, thanks to Ailey Elmore, my colleague, is uh, promisedland.fund on the internet. That's our website. Uh, and farmers and potential investors can sign up for our Promised Land newsletter. Uh, and uh, we're planning on publishing a Farmer's Daughter series that my colleague Ailey will research and, and write. Uh, Ailey, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. I, I work with John as an investment analyst and a digital content creator. Um, my name is Ailey Elmore, and I grew up on a farm in central Illinois. So John brought me in um, to give my two cents, especially on the agriculture side. I also work as an instructor at the University of Illinois, um, and I research a lot in the farmland space. Um, and so John brought me in and I helped do a lot of his digital content creation and then his um, his investment work. So that's just a little bit about me. <laughs> you can also reach me at John at servantfinancial.com or uh, you can find uh, me and Ailey on LinkedIn uh, searching for Servant Financial or, or Promised Land. Awesome. Well, John and Ailey, both, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. We certainly appreciate it. Yes. Now you know why I'm the man, the myth, the legend. Thanks again there to John for coming on and chatting with us. Definitely an interesting conversation. It certainly was, Ashton. And uh, I, I like having those conversations in hindsight. You know, I think that was a pretty good one to have on a Friday. John was a pretty good sport with us and uh, forgave me for mispronouncing his last name. But I love having those high level conversations, learning about how folks that aren't involved in the ag industry you know, by nature or by being born into it, uh, find their way into the industry through osmosis, we'll just say. <laughs> well, Delaney, if anyone that wants to listen to some Ag News Daily episodes over the weekend here, they can do so at agnewsdaily.com. They can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily so they can keep up with the latest from us. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.